All right. Good evening, everybody. All right. It's good to be saved tonight. Some good singing. I enjoy those songs. Uh, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And I wish I had enough voice for you to sing a song for slash with you, but I just don't think it'd be a good idea. And we have quite a long chapter tonight, 50 verses. I make no promises about how far we are going to get, but Matthew 12 is where we, we're going to begin at verse 1 and just see how far the Holy Spirit will take us tonight. And as always, let's go ahead and bow our heads and begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you this evening. What a privilege it is to open up our Bibles, turn our attention to you, and tonight we get to read 50 verses worth of things that Jesus said and did, and Lord, we can learn about you. And that's our desire, more about Jesus. Thank you that there is room at the cross. Lord, thank you for making room for me all those years ago. I pray tonight you would be happy with what's said and done. Please meet with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 12. And I'm going to break this chapter down into five parts. So here's the outline for the chapter. Part one, exceptional cases. Exceptional cases. And specifically, he's dealing with the Sabbath day. Exceptional cases, verses 1 to 13. Part two, executing Jesus. They sought to kill him. Executing Jesus. And that'll be verses 14 to 21. Part three, exorcism via Beelzebub. Of course, that was the accusation they made against the Lord. That's verses 22 to 37. Exorcism via Beelzebub. Part four, evil generation. Evil generation. And in parentheses, I have there, seeks additional sign because that's that was one of the reasons that Jesus called them wicked or, or, or evil. That's verses 38 to 45. And then verses 46 to 50, part 5, extended family is what I'm calling that. Extended family. All right, let's get to verse number 1. It says here, At that time Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, through a cornfield, and His disciples were and hungered, and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. This is a common expression to me as an American to say ears of corn. I don't think it's unfamiliar here. I'm pretty sure everybody knows what that is. I think the more common term around here is a mealy, however, to pull that ear of corn off of the stalk. Now, they were hungry. They did what hungry people do. As they're walking through a cornfield, they grabbed an ear of corn and they ate it raw. I don't know if you've ever done that. I have. I was in Ohio one time visiting a church there. And a pastor had his own cornfield, and he uh, suggested that I give it a try. I must admit, it was very nice. This is not stealing. Right? What, the, what the disciples are doing, even though this wasn't their field, it wasn't their corn, there was room in the law to do what they're doing. Now, just for the sake of time, let me tell you where to find it. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. As somebody walks through their neighbor's cornfield, they were allowed to break off an ear of corn and take that. They could not, however, get like a barrel full. They, they couldn't harvest in their neighbor's field. Uh, so what they're doing is perfectly legitimate. Verse 2, But when the Pharisees saw it, 
They said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. So the act of taking an ear of corn, no problem. But the day of the week on which they did it, they are doing it on the Sabbath day. Is it okay to pluck an ear of corn on the Sabbath day, to just take one ear off the stock? Well, let's, let's turn back to the Old Testament quickly. Uh, get the book of Exodus. I'm just going to show you from Exodus tonight. Chapter 31. The, the law is filled with warnings about the Sabbath day. Get Exodus chapter 31 and verse number 14. Exodus 31 and verse 14. I want to just show you how serious the Lord took this. He says here, Ye shall keep the Sabbath therefore, for it is holy unto you. Every one that defileth it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever doeth any work therein, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. You might remember on, in, uh, on Sunday night in Romans, I mentioned that there were a lot of verses about being cut off from their people. This is one of them. Any work done on the Sabbath day, and God took it very seriously. Look at chapter 34, Exodus 34, verse 21. Exodus 34, verse 21. It says, Six days thou shalt work, but on the seventh day thou shalt rest. In earing time and in harvest thou shalt rest. So you, you, if it's the Sabbath day, even though it might be the perfect time to go and get the fruit or the corn or whatever it is out of the field, you, you have to rest. You're not allowed to do work on that day. Look at chapter 35, Exodus 35, verse 3. He's talking about the Sabbath in verse 1 and 2, and then verse 3. Ye shall kindle no fire throughout your habitations upon the Sabbath day. They weren't allowed to cook, right? So they would cook and make all their preparations the day before the Sabbath so that they wouldn't have to even kindle a fire on the Sabbath day. Now come back to Matthew 12. The Pharisees, when they say, Ooh, you guys, you're, you're taking an ear of corn, they didn't accuse them of stealing, but they are accusing them of violating the law about the Sabbath day. Now I want you to see how Jesus responds to that. Before I do, can I just give you this quick quote? This is Maimonides. It was a Jewish rabbi or sage, if you want to say it that way. He lived about a thousand years ago, but he made comment about the Sabbath saying this, He that reaps on the Sabbath day ever so little is guilty of stoning. So that would be the punishment. And plucking of ears of corn is a derivative of reaping. So Maimonides understood the Old Testament laws that we just looked at as as um, outlawing even plucking an ear of corn. Now watch how Jesus responds, verse three. But he said unto them, "Ye have not, have ye not read what David did when he was in hunger, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priest." Notice that Jesus does not argue the fact that they have done work on the Sabbath day. Jesus doesn't argue with them and say, listen guys, just taking one ear of corn is not a big deal. That's not considered work. It, it, it is. It was considered work. And even the Jewish law would agree to that. Jesus points out that there are exceptional cases in the Old Testament that 
would override or be more important, take precedent beyond the Sabbath day, the law about the Sabbath day. So there are sometimes extenuating circumstances where within one situation you have two, let's say, laws that you're either going to have to break one and keep the other. What do you do? David, if you are familiar with the story that Jesus is referring to, it's in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 6. And David was on the run from Saul, which is an extraordinary case, right? It's, it's unusual. It's not the typical thing. Exceptional case. And he goes to the tabernacle, and the high priest, David says, do you have any bread? He says, all I have is showbread, which is holy. It's sanctified stuff. Only the priests were allowed to deal with it and eat it and so forth. And the priest said, Listen, this is all I have. David said, but this is an urgent thing. Can, can we have access to it? The priest said, well, if the men have kept themselves at least from women, then I guess it might be all right. David said, we, we haven't come near any women. It's fine. So he said, in a, manner, in a way of saying, the bread is now common. Be, because the, the vessels, the bodies of these men have been kept from women. They're clean in that sense. So now they're on the same level with the bread. The bread is sanctified. The men are sanctified. So now it's all common. So under that exceptional case, it was okay for David and his men to eat the bread. And verse 5, you can see Jesus gives another exceptional case. Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath, and are blameless. Now, had the Jews checked the law deep and not just focused in, zeroed in on just the Sabbath, they would have seen that the priest had duties every day of the week, even on the Sabbath. They had to offer up various sacrifices. Jesus said, haven't you recognized that there are sometimes exceptional cases? Uh, what you're dealing with in, in the case of Jesus and his disciples, you have two laws that you have to consider. Number one, the ceremonial law, keep the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath day. But there's a second law, a natural law, and that is we're hungry. We need to eat. We're on a journey. We're heading somewhere. Uh, we don't have any food for the day. Whatever the situation was, they needed something to eat. So what do you do? Do you keep the Sabbath or do you, do you eat that day? And looking at those two laws, Jesus and the disciples saw no problem with fulfilling the natural law at the expense of the ceremonial law. In verse 5, what the priest had to do in the temple or in the tabernacle on the Sabbath days, here's a term you might appreciate, it was considered an essential service. Right? They, they had to do that. So even though the Sabbath was a special day, the priest also had things that were special they needed to do. Verse 6, he says, But I say unto you, that in this place is one greater than the temple. So notice that Jesus is now referencing priorities. Which one is greater? And of course, he's talking about himself being, being greater. Uh, in verse 7, But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is trying to point out what is more important. What is is more important. So how do I know what to do when I'm in one of these sticky situations where there, there are, there's two laws that seem to be colliding and 
should I take care of the natural law, the ceremonial law? Which way should I go? You look at what's more important. You look at what is of greater importance. What Jesus is referencing in verse 7, your personal relationship with God is more important than a sacrifice or than a Sabbath day, a ceremonial ritual, a, a special day. What your personal walk with God trumps that. Now, there are several other examples in the Old Testament that aren't linked to the Sabbath day that show the exceptional nature of some laws. And I'll give you one that's very obvious. In Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh commanded that all the uh, male babies be killed among the Israelites. But then the midwives went in, and when a Hebrew woman was, going to, was giving birth to a, a baby boy, they would save the baby. And then they would lie to Pharaoh and say, ah, you know, they, they gave birth before we got here, so there's nothing we can do. And they protected the Hebrew families. And the Bible says God blessed them for that, provided houses for them and homes. Um, they lied, but they lied, I want to say, for a good cause. It was to protect the lives of those babies. Pharaoh had made an evil command. And therefore, the midwives had a choice to make. Do we submit to the government? That's right to do. Or do we lie? And which is obviously, there's, there's the law about thou shalt not bear false witness. And that's a part of our moral law within us. We know it's not right to lie. But in that circumstance, it seems correct to go ahead and violate that, that under normal circumstances, that moral law to preserve life. Uh, so, in verse 7, he says at the end of it, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus and his disciples did nothing wrong because what they were doing was taking care of a, their, their natural needs of, of food. Uh, the point of the Sabbath was still preserved. Right? Jesus and his disciples did not lose sight of what the Sabbath day meant. The Sabbath was a sign between God and Israel to remind them not only that they need to rest on a daily basis, not only, or a, a weekly basis, not only to remind them that God is the Creator and that He rested on the seventh day, but also it was meant to remind the Jews that one day they will have this, uh, this millennial rest, this eternal rest even, we can say. There, that there was this uh, rest that they had to look forward to. Jesus and the disciples did not lose sight of that by taking these, uh, these ears of corn. Now, if I can relate this into the New Testament, the Bible says in verse 7, If ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. This goes back to what Jesus had previously said in Matthew 9. Go ye and learn what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. He told them to study this out. They failed to do their Bible study. What's more important is knowing God. What's more important is is accepting the mercy of God and then extending that mercy to others. That, God is more interested in those things than someone just going through the motions of religious rituals. And in the New Testament, this, the same principle still applies in our day and age. Our personal relationship with God, that's, what's the most, that's where God focuses the most. What are some things that help us with that? Well, going to church, reading your Bible, praying, witnessing, that helps other people with their relationship with God, and it helps you. Uh, helping people with food, clothing, just the basic 
necessities of life, all of those things factor into your personal relationship with God. But sometimes what happens is we begin to focus in on one part of that and we make it greater than what should be the, 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 the main issue, and that is me loving God, Him loving me. So we think, oh, I've got to read a certain amount of pages in my Bible. I've got to spend so many minutes in prayer. And if I don't, then everything's ruined. That Don't lose sight of why you're doing those things. I think that's the gist of this passage. Don't lose sight of why God gave you the Sabbath. It wasn't to restrict your life so that the Sabbath becomes everything. You can still do things that make sense on the Sabbath day. Verse 8, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. What is greater, the law or the lawgiver? Now notice how Jesus, He takes to Himself the title of Lord, the one who gave the command about the Sabbath. He's Lord even of the Sabbath day. He's above it. He's the lawgiver. This is a great example of Jesus accepting deity, right? The Messiah is a, is, is, a, is a divine figure. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. So what's more important here? The Sabbath, the law, or the lawgiver? The opinion of Jesus. What does He think of the situation? That's more important than religion offering opinions about technicalities of the law. Jesus is okay with His disciples eating something on the Sabbath day. That, now, I will allow you to take that principle and apply it to whatever, whatever situations are necessary in your life. Uh, verse 9, it says, And when He was departed thence, He went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. So you've seen it before, they curled up, things like that. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? Now, I assume that this is a different crowd than the Pharisees he'd just been dealing with because Jesus just answered this. <laughs> I have seen this happen on multiple occasions where somebody will miss church, miss a Bible study, and the very next week or two, three weeks after, they'll come and ask, Pastor, what about this topic? And ironically, it's something that I just covered and they just missed. I think that a little bit of that's going on here. Jesus has just dealt with the Sabbath day and why it would be okay to heal somebody on that day. But He's going to give them an example here and teach them the same lesson. In verse 11, He said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, and if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? Well, now, see, that just makes sense. That's the right thing to do. You, do you see how the exceptional nature kicks in? Is the Sabbath day important? Yes. Should we honor it, remember it, keep... If you're an Old Testament Jew, yes. The, you, you have to recognize how important it is. But I'm still allowed to use common sense. If this animal is in danger of dying and I need to lift it out, then by all means. If I'm hungry and need to get a bite to eat, then by all means. Right? So he says in verse 12, How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. So Jesus asked what appears to be a rhetorical question in verse 11. He didn't even wait for the answer. The answer is obvious. You lift the sheep out. 
Verse 12, a man's better than a sheep. So obviously, you're allowed to do what's right on the Sabbath day. Guys, here, here's a, a, isn't this simple? It's always right to do what's right. It's always right to do what's right. Watch how this applies in, in life. When somebody will not do what's right because of something in their religion, that's when you know you're dealing with a cult. When you're not allowed to do what's right because of religion. Biblical religion, right? The, the, the biblical way of walking with God will always allow you to do what's right in that circumstance. All right, verse 13. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like as the other. So without waiting for them to respond to this at all, he turns theory into practice. He says, I will show you just how I feel about it. Let me answer with my actions, not just my words. And then he heals the man. So this withered hand comes, comes right, comes out straight. To, to me, this is like a mic drop moment, right? Where Jesus just drops the mic and says, boom, see? It's right to do right. And, and that's the end of the scene, right? After that cut and you're done, Jesus walks off in, in, into the sunset having won this, this uh, I want to say this, uh, battle with these guys. Notice also that their question in verse 10, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days? They're not asking a genuine question in order to learn something. They want to start an argument. Be, be cautious, guys. I love Bible questions. I love receiving them, especially when they're from genuine people who want to know. Even if you don't agree with something that I've said or something else that you've heard some, you know, from some other person and you want to ask about it, you may not agree with it. You may have preconceived notions about that thing. But if you're going to ask, at least be open to learning something about it. Right? If you want to ask something so that you can argue and prove your point, I don't think you're going to make it very far. All right, verse number four. And I don't mean with me personally, but I, I just don't think that's the right attitude with which to ask questions. All right, now verse 14. Uh, before we get to that, you guys forgive me. I, I think that the, uh, the internet here is stalled a little bit. I'm going to restart this, but we'll come back in verse 14 just now. Okay, I think we're back up and ready. All right, verse 14. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Now, this is one of those times where Jesus, rather than standing up and trying to defend his reputation, he is dealing with it very meekly. He is dealing with it in a, in a very prudent manner. The prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself. Rather than stand up and prove his points, I'm a righteous man, you have no right to be saying these things, he could, Jesus could have exposed their plans and he could have proved to, the, to society that he was more righteous than them. Jesus, however, did not lose sight of the bigger picture. He was there, he was sent by the Father so that he could make it all the way to the cross where he would die, buried, rise again. He had to make it to that. The point of him being on earth was not to defend his reputation. Philippians 2, right? Verse 6 and 7, he made himself of no reputation. 
So this is the smart thing to do. Some, they were coming after him. This would completely mess up the plan that God had for him. So he, he uh, withdraws. He gets away from the danger. He's not, it's not scared. It's prudence. It's just smart. Uh, at verse 16, "...and charged them that they should not make him known." Now, remember, we've dealt with this on other occasions. Jesus didn't want to stir up a big, can I, can I use the word hoopla? He didn't want a bunch of commotion. He didn't want a bunch of attention. He knew that if everybody sees him do it, they're all going to crowd around. It's going to end up turning into something much bigger than what he needed it to be at that moment. So even though he, there's great multitudes and he's healing them, please guys keep it quiet. I don't want to start some big riot with the Pharisees and scribes and all of that. You can see it in verse 17, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, now he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 42, verses I think 1 down to 4, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. Now, right, that's we're talking big picture. When Jesus came, He came for the house of Israel, but He knew that by ministering to them and establishing the kingdom with them, that all the nations of the world would flow into that kingdom and the Gentiles would be reached secondarily. Verse 19, And He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear His voice in the streets. This, this is a, I've, I've heard this verse used to prove that you shouldn't be preaching in public, that you shouldn't witness on the streets or preach in the open air. This has nothing to do with open air preaching. This has to do with riots, public uh, rioting. Jesus was not a political activist. He wasn't there to raise that sort of commotion. If he had, he would have ended up destroying Israel. The Roman army was just too strong. And Israel had been weakened because of they, for centuries they had been suffering at the hand of Gentile oppressors. Since the 700s BC, the northern ten tribes of Israel went into captivity. And then in 606, the, the southern tribes went into captivity. And from that time, Gentiles had been oppressing and conquering and just decimating the Jews over and over again. In verse 20, a bruised reed shall he not break. Israel was bruised. They'd been, they'd been taking a beating from all these wars going on in their land. And a smoking flax shall he not quench. So they, they'd been burned. Israel as a nation was not in good shape. They could not withstand uh, the Roman army coming in and trying to, what would be the right word, put down this what would have appeared as an attempted mutiny, right? An attempted overthrow of the government. So Jesus knew, I don't want to go down that path. It says, A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. When Jesus came the first time, he was not there to fight any physical battles. He was there to offer the kingdom and to tell the people to repent, to die for us. He is there as a suffering servant. Now one day, one day, Jesus will use force. One day there will be violence involved in the wrath of the Lamb, which is kind of a strange phrase, right? But that's how it's worded in Revelation 6. They will fear the wrath of the Lamb. 
uh, lambs are usually not very scary. But one day he will send forth judgment unto victory. He will eventually prove who was right. They nailed him to the cross and killed him the first time. When he comes the second time, the tables get turned. So judgment will come forth unto victory. In verse 21, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Another reference to all the nations flowing into the kingdom that Jesus will establish. But that explains why Jesus kept telling people, I've healed you, great, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. He didn't want a huge public commotion that would have lit, right? If they start, Jesus starts arguing with the scribes and Pharisees, then who's right, who's wrong? It turns into this big public battle. Then the Roman army comes in, has to put it down, and it turns into something Jesus did not want. All right, verse 22. It says, Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. So he's unable to speak. Now, not everybody that's blind and or dumb it has a devil, right? This, in, in this case, obviously, that's what the situation was. But that's not always the case. But uh, it says, And he healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. So we don't have a lot of detail about you know, this person's backstory. We, Matthew introduces it with this much information because what's really important is what happens after this. Verse 23 and all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? Notice the common man's reaction to this. The common man saw what Jesus did, not just this one instance, but everything that he'd been doing. They could see it. Thought, this guy is doing exactly what was prophesied about the Messiah, the son of David. In John, it says, when the Messiah does come, Will, will he do greater things than what Jesus is doing? That was the argument that some people were using. What, what else would we ask of the Messiah? This guy's doing everything that, that we uh, would expect. Sorry, let me just check my notes on this. Right, right. Now, this guy was not just your typical prophet, right? Your preach the paint off the walls prophet. Israel was uh, used to them. They would come in, thus saith the Lord, and every now and then there was a miracle involved in their ministries, especially like Elijah and Elisha. But Jesus was doing things that n none of these other prophets had, had done. So they knew something was special about Him. Verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Now what was their evidence for that? Why, why would they say that about Jesus? There's, there's nothing substantial here. There's nothing to support their claim. Why would they say he's doing this through the power of Satan? The reason they said it is hatred. It has nothing to do with proof. Uh, in verse 24, the, the, the word Beelzebub, now it depends on who you're talking to, how they might take that word. If you break it down, it, it does mean Lord of the Flies, right? So many people understand it that way. That's an accurate um, explanation of the word. It, it can also be translated as the dung god. That's, a, that's incredible. <laughs> Why would you want to be the god of that? But the, the dung god. But that goes along with the Lord of the Flies, doesn't it? I mean, where there's dung, there is flies. So the, those two things work together. Also, Beelzebub appears to have been another name or connected to the Canaanite god Baal. So some people would understand it like that. 
Now, the way that the Pharisees were using it, it says it right there in the verse, Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. So they were giving Satan another title. They were referring to him as Beelzebub. This is mudslinging at its worst. They're just trying to make Jesus sound and look as bad as they can, trying to ruin his reputation and his testimony publicly. Verse 25, And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. That's what a civil war will, will do, obviously. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Well, now that's a fair point. Notice the three groups that he's, he's pointed out. Kingdom, city, house. Every kingdom is made up of cities. Cities are made up of homes. Homes made up of individuals. By the end of the passage, we're going to deal with binding the strong man and then delivering the goods. So it, it will eventually get down to an individual. But uh, those three levels of society, the nation, the city, you can think of it as the community, and then the home. Once it gets divided, right, the whole thing falls apart. Now, he brings it home in verse 26. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? Well, that's a, he's got them there, right? Jesus has been casting out devils, and now they're saying that he's doing it by the power of the devil. Why, why would the devil be doing that? So there's a logical fallacy behind their argument. Um, let me take a moment here to explain something about Satan casting out Satan. Notice the terminology. Verse 26, if Satan cast out Satan. Now, Satan will not cast out unclean spirits. He won't cast them out. But look what he will do. Verse 43. Look down at verse 43. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then saith he, I will return into my house from whence I came out. Now, we're going to look at that more and hopefully in just a few minutes. What Satan will do is temporarily remove unclean spirits from a person so that in the long run he can make their situation even worse. Let me try to illustrate it with this. If you're renting a home and your landlord comes and gives you an eviction notice, right? he is casting you out. Now that's one thing. But what if your landlord comes and says, listen, I need you to step out from the house for about two or three weeks. I need to do some renovations. I need to fix the thing up, paint it a little bit, make it look better inside. Then you can come back in. Those are two separate situations. The devil, right? I'm sure you see where I'm going with this. The devil will not come to a person that has an unclean spirit and evict the unclean spirit. Say, get out, don't come back. He wouldn't do that. What he would do is say, uh, Mr. Unclean Spirit, would you please step out for a few weeks? I want to make a few adjustments in this person's life so that you can come back with seven friends, we'll read it later, and we'll completely destroy this person. The devil would do that. He would do that. Um, we'll talk more about We'll get more into this as time goes on. But Verse 27, And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? So the Pharisees, they also had 
followers, right? Uh, that referred to here as your children, the people following you. So there were people following the Pharisees that were casting out devils. And I am going to assume that they were doing so in the name of Jesus. I'll show you why in just a moment. Jesus said at the end of verse 27, Therefore they shall be your judges. So you guys are accusing me of summoning the power of Satan in order to cast out unclean spirits. But then your followers are also some, some people that claim to be part of the Pharisee club. They are casting out devils and they are evidently doing it in the name of Jesus, um, then by condemning Jesus, you are also condemning your followers at the same time. He says, you go ask them if using my name to cast out devils is in some way uh, satanic. You, you go ask them if, if they are summoning the power of Satan in order to do that. They'll judge you. They will tell you that you're wrong. Now, let me show you why I say that Others were doing this in his name. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 38. Mark 9, verse 38. Which, by the way, this is the attendance code for tonight. Mark 9, verse 38. All right, Mark 9, 38. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him because he followeth not us. So this guy didn't go to the same church, so to speak, right? He, this guy did not walk side by side with Jesus and the other apostles and disciples. Yet, he was going out using the name of Jesus and casting out devils. John said, oh, hey, you haven't been authorized to do that. Stop it. Verse 39, but Jesus said, forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. Now, keep that in mind. We're going to run into that phrase here in just a moment. In Matthew, there were others that were interested in ministering to people, and they knew the power that was involved in Jesus' name. They knew the authority that Jesus had. In their own name, they couldn't manipulate the spiritual world. But they knew that this Jesus guy could, and they weren't against Jesus, right? Now, don't think, don't, don't get confused with this passage and say, well, this was, uh, you know, some guy from a different religion preaching a different message, but still able to do miracles. That's not what it says. It doesn't say he was preaching false doctrine and then doing miracles with it. This guy was not against Jesus. He, 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 wasn't, he wasn't part of that inner circle, right? He wasn't part of the group that followed Jesus physically down the road, but he wasn't against them. Uh, another case is in Acts chapter 19 and verse number 13. Acts 19 and 13. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, uh, they practice, uh, I want to say their profession is to cast out unclean spirits, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, we adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priest, which did so. So that tells me there were other religious Jews that used the name. They didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Right? 
they called on the name of Jesus whom Paul preacheth. So <laughs> nothing personal to them. So come back to Matthew 12. There were others doing this. So Jesus said, you go ask these other guys that are using my name if there's anything devilish involved in our ministry. Verse 28, Matthew 12 and 28. He says, but if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. He said, all right, guys, I have offered you legitimate proof, legitimate reasoning, right? logical thinking, why your statement about me being connected to Beelzebub is absolute rubbish. And he said, if you want more proof, go ask your followers. They'll tell you. He said, now, if you're wrong, do you realize what you're doing? You are now making an accusation against the Spirit of God. You are saying that the power through which I'm doing this is Satan instead of the Spirit of God. He says, if you're wrong, guys, you realize what this means is that the Spirit of God is the one doing this. He's the one working through me. And that means that this kingdom I've come to offer you, it's, it truly is right here at hand, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. Furthermore, right, that's the physical sense. The, the political kingdom could have been set up. It, it was being offered. But also, the kingdom of God is, can also refer to the spiritual kingdom where God would rule in somebody's heart. Where is the kingdom of God found? The spiritual version of it. Romans 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. So these Pharisees that were so filled with hate against Jesus, they have both the spiritual and the political kingdom right there. They, they had access. And instead of repenting, humbling themselves, and accepting it, they call the Spirit of God Satan. So here's the... It, well, we're going to see the repercussions of that in just a moment. Verse 29, Or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? It's kind of an odd illustration to use. But Jesus, if he wants to, or if a thief gets in the house, he's going to take the most valuable things. What's the most valuable thing in this temple of clay in this house that I call my body. It's my soul, right? What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Well, if an unclean spirit is dwelling in somebody, it has power to manipulate that person and cause them to think incorrectly, act incorrectly. Jesus, in order to uh, spoil, I want to say, to take Take by force that man's soul, right? In order to uh, obtain it, he has to first bind the strong man, whoever is uh, oppressing that, that person. So Jesus is explaining, that's what I'm doing. I am first kicking out, casting out these devils so that I can minister to somebody that's thinking clearly, acting, acting normal. Uh, you might remember in Mark 5, we saw it in, Ma in Matthew 8, where the maniacs of Gadara, they weren't in their right mind. So there are times where you cannot deal with a person. You can't give them the gospel. They're not thinking clearly. They don't understand correctly. And they need some, they need some other things to get taken care of. They, they have some big issues that are holding them back. 
and those strong men, whatever are holding them back, need to be bound. Now, it might be an unclean spirit. It might be a, a false doctrine that has a hold of them. It could be uh, a, a, some, something wrong in their marriage, in their home. Whatever the situation is, you might have to deal with that first and get that bound up and fixed or taken care of. Then you have access to the real treasure. That's that person's soul. Verse 30, He that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Now this is slightly different than what we read in Mark 9. I'll let you compare the two verses later. We'll just deal with what we're looking at in verse 30. He that is not with me is against me. If you were to take the stance, back in the, when Jesus was saying this, when you're watching Him do these things, say, ah, you know what, I'm not convinced. I, I, I'm not convinced. Yeah, He says He's the Messiah. I see all the miracles, but uh, you know, I don't want to get involved in this religious uh, discussion, and you know, I, I'd rather just stay out of it. There is no neutral ground. If you're not for Him, then you're against Him. Why? You're not part of the cure. You're part of the problem. If you're not convinced, then you need someone to reach out to you and convince you. So there is, to, to try to stay neutral and say, I'm just going to stay out of it, you have placed yourself on the other side. He that is not with me is, is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. So by not taking a positive action, right, falling in line with Jesus, changing your life, so that it matches what He desires, then you are, you are affecting those around you. You're scattering abroad the people that you could be reaching if you were actively following Christ. You're not reaching. You're allowing them to just scatter off into eternity. Verse number 31, Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. So men have said some horrible things. They say it about other people. And those things can be forgiven. He says, But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Now, we have to qualify this statement. The, the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, it, once you cross that line, that's it. You've gone too far, and you're not going to be able to recover yourself. But turn over to Mark chapter 3. I want you to see exactly what Jesus is referring to when He talks about blaspheming the Holy Ghost. Mark chapter 3, and let's look together starting in verse number 29. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Because, now watch verse 30, because they said, He hath an unclean spirit. In order to commit this particular blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, you would have to witness Jesus performing a miracle, hear Him say that He's doing it at the behest of the Father, that He is doing it through the power of the Spirit of God, You'd have to see that and then make the statement, nope, I reject what he's saying. I, after I look at the entire group, or um, the collection of evidence of Jesus' life in his ministry, and my conclusion is he is full of Beelzebub. He hath an unclean spirit. 
That is what you would have to do in order to commit this blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. That is not something we can do today. Right? We are not physically watching the, the ministry of Jesus. We're not physically hearing or audibly hearing what He's preaching. Obviously, we can read in the Bible and come to a conclusion. But I believe, and you'll see it in Matthew just now, that this sin of blaspheming against the Holy Ghost to which Jesus is referring was limited to those people that were watching these miracles and then coming to this horrible conclusion. Uh, Flip over to Acts chapter 8. Let me show you an example. Acts chapter 8. Once you get into the New Testament, uh, you know, the other side of the cross, we have Simon the sorcerer. You might remember that name. In Acts 8, start reading with me in verse 17. Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. Now, what Simon just did is he spoke evil of the Holy Ghost. He thinks that it's something you can purchase with money. That's what the word blasphemy means. It means to speak evil of something. He's just committed that. Now look what Peter says. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee. So he says, You and your money can go to hell. Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. How dare you? Peter took offense to it. Verse 21, Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, now watch this, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. Well, Jesus said the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost can never be forgiven. And then Peter tells Simon, you just said something awful about the Holy Spirit. Now pray, maybe God will straighten you out and give you a chance and you can find forgiveness. So that tells me that what Jesus is referring to and what Peter dealt with are they're both blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, but different contexts are, are, are at work there. All right, so come back to Matthew 12, and let's keep going in verse number 32. Matthew 12 and verse 32. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Now, what would, what would be an example of this? Uh, there were lots of people that did not think Jesus was the Messiah. And the reasons for that were many. They, they thought he had an illegitimate birth. They thought he wasn't educated. Uh, they had different things that they didn't like about the man, Jesus. Those things could be forgiven. I think Saul of Tarsus, right, who we know as the Apostle Paul, isn't he a great example of that? Don't you know that Saul had some nasty things to say about Jesus before he truly understood who he was. And yet Saul, he, he was forgiven. Whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him. Now notice the timing aspect that Jesus mentions. Neither in this world, current state of things, when he was there, neither in the world to come. What would that be? The kingdom. In the kingdom age, Jesus is on the earth. People can 
watch what he's doing, can hear what he's saying, and we read in Revelation chapter 20, after the devil comes out of the bottomless pit, he will deceive the nations again, and they will think, they will try to overthrow Jesus. They will surround and compass and besiege Jerusalem and try to overthrow the holy city. So that's why Jesus says, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. But that shows us when this sin against the Holy Ghost is possible, this blasphemy, while Jesus is on the earth back then and when He will be on the earth in the future. All right, now verse 33, either make the tree good and His fruit, or else make the tree corrupt and His fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by His fruit. We dealt with this in Matthew chapter 7. You might remember uh, Jesus has already mentioned this in the Sermon on the Mount. But he's making the point again with this crowd. Say, guys, be consistent. Look at, look at the whole tree. Don't look at just one branch, one piece. Look at the whole thing. Look at Jesus' entire ministry. Everything that he said, done. Look at the results. Look at how the people's lives have changed. Now, are you going to say that, that all, all of that came from the devil? He said, guys, that's just not logical. If, if you're going to start with a bad root, then you're going to have bad fruit. They're accusing him of having a bad root, but the fruit was very good. Now, please don't atomize this, right? Because it is possible that a bad person can, in an exceptional case, do a good thing. And vice versa. A good person can have a bad day and do a bad thing. That's why I say you don't look at just one little piece of fruit. You, judge, you look at the whole tree and everything it's producing, at the whole life of the tree, and then come to your conclusion. Verse 33, or 34, rather. O generation of vipers. Yeah, that's a strong statement. You bunch of snakes. You sons of serpents. Now, <laughs> they just accused Jesus of being of Beelzebub. Now he's kind of turning the tables on them. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, Speak good things. For out of the abundance of the heart, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Uh, that's a great verse, great practical verse. There's a lot of good preaching that needs to be done from it. But these guys were speaking rubbish because they had rubbish in their heart. Verse 35: A good man, out of the good treasure of the heart, bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil, evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. Where were these evil things, these, these lies about Jesus, these hateful comments, where do they come from? They'd been storing up this bitterness, wrath, envy, this anger in their heart. Be careful what you store up in your heart because it will eventually manifest through your mouth. Verse 36, But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Guys, that verse, it should strike a little bit of the fear, not a little bit, it should strike the fear of God into you. Every idle word. These are the words that you say when you're just sitting around. When you're just chatting with the guys, you know, with your buddies. Every idle word, it all gets judged. Over there in the book of Ezekiel, you're, you'll find a passage. I think it's in chapter 35 or 30. I think it's 35. 
Um, but there, there's a verse back there where God says He's going to judge a nation because they said, Aha! Whenever Israel had something bad happen to them. God said, you said, aha, and I noted it. And I'm going to judge you for it. One word, aha. Every idle word you give account thereof in the day of judgment. Verse 37, for by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Uh, when you take into account that what comes out of your mouth stems from the heart, right? This is the well that produces um, the water. So on the day of judgment, God will ask, what did you say about my son? What, what was your official, official proclamation about this, that, and the other thing that God commanded you to do? And God will take your statements about it, right? Some people say, you know, the things of God, not a big deal. Well, now that, that statement, that's going to be evidenced by what they did in their life. You're, you, you usually live up, right? You, you live, whatever that proclamation is, you say, I believe in this. You say, what about a hypocrite? Well, 